uh, encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and open it again to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 3, this morning will be in verses 7 through 12. Mark 3, 7 through 12. If you're new to finding your way around the Bible, Mark is in the New Testament, which is the, about the last third or so of our Bibles. Bibles are, our Bibles are split into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament conveying God's work of uh, redeeming and, and, and revealing His plan for rescue from sin to and through His people of Israel. And then the New Testament fi- uh, finds God's fulfillment of that plan in the person of His Son, Jesus the Christ. Our New Testaments begin with the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are four early biographies of Jesus, God's Son, of His sinless life, His ministry, His healing, His miraculous deeds most especially his death on the cross in the place of sinners and his resurrection from the dead, which we celebrated last week being Easter Sunday. Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Uh, If you're a fan of sitcoms, you are probably well acquainted with the montage episode. A montage episode is an episode usually tucked away in the middle of a, of a season of a particular sitcom where something is happening, usually in the relationship between a couple of characters or a, a significant place uh, in the context of the show. And the montage episode goes back in time to previous episodes and shows, it's kind of like a best of episode. It just shows replays of, of favorite scenes that fans are likely to enjoy uh, as, as they watch it. But the montage episode, being kind of a transitional episode, they always feel to me like a filler show. Like, I, I don't need that. I already binged all the other episodes. I know what happened. You can keep that one to yourself. But these transitional episodes serve a purpose. They're often easily overlooked because it's all replays of our favorite scenes. Maybe that's why we like them. But the montage episode stands there in the middle of a sitcom season to summarize long storylines that have been taking place maybe over multiple seasons of the show to help push a a critical relationship forward, to, to help push a particular event forward, to remind us of all the things that have happened and why what is taking place in this present moment in the show is particularly, uh, particularly, uh, important. The passage that we look at today in Mark chapter 3, is also a transitional episode. It's, it's a scene, a, an event in the life of Jesus that's getting us from one thing, from one place, and to another. Now, it might be easy to overlook this passage in Mark 3, 7 to 12, as just another transitional passage. Just pass over it quickly and move on to what's next. But I want to encourage us, let's, let's fight not to do that. We should not look past this passage, transitional as it is, like it doesn't matter. These words here in Mark 3, verses 7 through 12, uh, what happens there is maybe not as exciting as what we saw in the, uh, over the course of chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3, the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. And it's certainly not as exciting or at least as tense as what will follow next where Jesus begins to have some conflict with his family. But all the same, these six verses in between scenes are equally inspired by the Holy Spirit, as are all the other verses that we've looked at so far, as is the rest of Scripture. But functionally, these few verses take us from the series of conflicts with the Pharisees now to a new conflict that we'll see next week with Jesus' own family. But these verses here in the middle, this transitional, uh, uh, this transitional moment, this uh, 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 summary of Jesus' ministry is not without significance in the course of Christ's life, nor is it without significance for us who are reading it even today. In these verses, Mark 3, 7-12, 
we find Jesus, who just having been rejected by the Pharisees, those religious ruling leaders, we find him being received widely by many people in the area of Palestine and even beyond, such that they are crowding to him from all places for healing from physical and spiritual diseases. It's a, an event, it's a passage that's easy to overlook, but we ought not, because there's an important idea to us that is communicated in these few verses. And that idea that we find in Mark 3, 7 to 12 is this, that Jesus offers healing and hope for the nations. If you're taking notes, you may want to write that down as a summary of these six verses. Jesus offers healing and hope for the nations. I would invite you, as you're comfortably able, would you please stand with me as we honor God, as we read His Word, Mark 3, verses 7 to 12. Mark, the missionary companion of Peter the Apostle, writes in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit these words, Jesus withdrew with His disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that He was doing, they came to Him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. This is God's word. You may be seated. Jesus offers healing and hope for the nations. I think it's true that we all have a need for faith that is more than mere religious practice. Religious practices like the Pharisees offered may bring temporary relief from spiritual agony or anxiety, but what we need is the cure of redemption and rescue that Jesus offers. The people who come to Jesus in this passage show something of their understanding that Jesus could offer something that the, religious, the religiousness or the religiosity of the Pharisees could not offer them. And in response, they flocked to him. Now, what raises the question for us to uh, this raises the question for us today: Why are you here, in a church, gathered with many others? Maybe not such a large crowd uh, as we're following Jesus, but a relatively large crowd nonetheless. Why are you here, gathered with others around the person of Jesus? What are you seeking from him today? We find in this passage that Jesus offers healing and hope for the nations. It's our intent that we find those same things in him also. So let's look at this passage and see how Mark communicates this to us. First of all, in verses 7 through 9, we see that the nations are coming. The nations are coming to Jesus. As verse 7 begins, we find Jesus withdrawing from the place where he healed the man with the disabled hand in the passage just before, Mark 3, 1 to 6. Probably there in that city, that town of Capernaum, near the Sea of Galilee, which was Jesus' sort of home base for most of his earthly ministry. He's leaving that place and withdrawing to the sea because it's clear to him that the Pharisees are determined to destroy him. Just remind ourselves of where uh, chapter 3, verse 6 ended. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus how to destroy him. So Jesus knows what they're up to and what they're about. They're probably not very good at hiding their motives or their intentions anyway. And so he withdraws, he pulls away from a dangerous place to a slightly more public place by the sea. Going there by the Sea of Galilee, the same place where he went to call the first disciples, those two uh, 
couples of brother fishermen, Peter and Andrew, James and John. He's there in sort of the safety of a public, public place as he continues his ministry. But as he goes, we find, as Mark tells us, that Jesus is followed, not by the Pharisees, but rather by a very eclectic crowd. Mark calls them a great crowd, a very large crowd. But more interesting than their size, I think, we see Jesus followed by great crowds in a number of places throughout the Gospels. More interesting than the size of this crowd is where this crowd is coming from, as Mark takes pains to point out. Notice, the people come from Galilee. We're familiar with Galilee. It's the region to the north of Judea near the Sea of Galilee. It's where Jesus spent a great deal of his ministry, probably most of his earthly ministry. They're also coming, Mark tells us, from Judea. Judea is another region south of Galilee, and it's the area that was home to the capital city of Jerusalem, where also people are coming from. Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem. But then Mark says people are also coming from beyond the Jordan. Now, the Jordan is a river that runs north to south between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. Everything to the east of the Jordan River is what's beyond the Jordan. Here, in that area beyond the Jordan, were a collection of ten cities called the Decapolis, which were mostly Gentile, meaning non-Jewish cities. So, Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, beyond the Jordan, and then also Idumea. Idumea is a region further south of Judea, which was named after the Edomites. The Edomites who were sort of relatives to the Jews, but not ethnically Jewish, who took over that region after the people of Israel and Judah were taken off into captivity into Babylon in 587 BC. The Edomites came in and settled in that area, and so that, that area of uh, Idumea was named after them. But then also, not just south to Idumea, but now north to these two port cities of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are not Jewish cities. These are Gentile cities, important cities for trade and commerce, but also well-known for their pagan worship practices. So who's coming to Jesus? Let's get the picture here. Jesus has been rejected by the Jewish religious elite in Capernaum. The Pharisees want nothing to do with him. They're plotting with even their own political enemies, the, the, the Herodians, to see how they can destroy Jesus and get him out of the picture. So he's despised by the religious elite in Capernaum, but at the same time explodes into popularity with people from all over the region and from all sorts of ethnic backgrounds. Not just Jews, but Gentiles too, flocking to Jesus. Mark says, when they heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So what was it that they heard of Jesus? Why are they coming to him? Well, what have we heard of Jesus so far in Mark's gospel? Well, we, we've heard that he's uh, healed sick people, that he's given the ability to walk back to paralytics, that he's healed people with disabled limbs, that he has cast demons out of those who have been demonically oppressed. People are hearing about a wonder worker, a healer, a man who can deliver people from evil spirits, and they come to him in droves to have those same needs met. So many come to him, in fact, that Jesus is concerned that he and his disciples might be crushed by the crowd that, has, uh, that, that, that has come to them. 
And so Jesus has his disciples pull some strings, probably with some fellow fishermen that they knew. Uh, the, 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 the disciples left their nets to follow Jesus, but they didn't leave their relationships with other fishermen behind. And so they probably borrow a small boat to have it ready at the shore for Jesus to escape to for just a moment to get out. It's like a Black Friday sale. Everybody coming to Jesus, someone's about to get trampled. It's not like they're trying to do it, but, but that's just the press. That's the, the crush of the crowd coming to Jesus. So what's the significance of this event where we have all these people from all the nations, Jewish and Gentile, coming to Jesus for healing? What are we meant to understand about Jesus here? Surely Mark's gospel is about Jesus. That's what he tells us at the beginning. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. What does this event tell us about Jesus? What, are we, what, what we today may not so quickly pick up on about Jesus in this episode, the gospel writer Matthew explains for us in his parallel account of this same event. We read in Matthew chapter 12, verses 17 through 21, this. Matthew tells us about the crowd that's following Jesus, the healing that Jesus does. And then he says, all of this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then he quotes Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. Behold, my, my servant whom I have chosen... My beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Now, this is interesting because Matthew is citing from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. We call it the Septuagint. And the Septuagint translates, uh, has verse 21 saying, in his name, the Gentiles will hope. But if we look at the Hebrew uh, text of Isaiah 42, in fact, if you look in your Bibles to Isaiah 42, which the translations are probably dependent upon the Hebrew text, not the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you will find that Isaiah says, in his name, the coastlands will hope. And so in Hebrew, that word coastlands becomes in Greek, this word ethne, which means Gentiles. Who's coming to Jesus? People from all over the place, but specifically from Tyre and Sidon. These two Gentile coastal cities. It seems that Matthew is saying the crowd that comes to Jesus from all over the place, but especially Gentile coastal cities, is to fulfill what God said about his servant in Isaiah 42. Matthew is telling us, parallel to Mark, that this transitional event in Jesus' life matters because it's fulfilling the Word of God. Through Isaiah, that prophet who lived and prophesied 700 years before Jesus was ever born, that God's chosen servant would be the hope of the Gentiles. The hope of people who were not born as Hebrews or Jews. And who is coming to Jesus at the sea? People from Jewish areas, yes, but also people from predominantly Gentile areas too. Now we do well to ask, why they were coming to Jesus. We know that they heard about what he was doing, and so they came. They're coming to Jesus likely for healing. As we already know from Mark chapter 1, Jesus has not come just to heal, but especially to preach the gospel. And we should be, I think, in this passage, struck by the absence of Jesus' teaching here. Jesus isn't teaching in Mark 3, 7 to 12. Why not? Strange. Seems that the size and maybe the intensity of the crowd may have prevented Jesus from preaching and teaching in this instance. Sometimes it's the urgency of the moment prevents him from doing what he intends to do or knows his mission to do. 
These many flavored people from all over the world are so desperate for healing that they're unaware of the greater mission of Christ, which is to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. We read earlier in Mark chapter 1 a summary of Jesus' ministry, his teaching ministry. He went out all throughout the region preaching in the synagogue saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And yet here he's not teaching. He's so pressed down by the need that these Gentiles have that he's unable to do, uh, to do what he knows he is called to do. In this scene, as we see the nations coming to Jesus, I think we find here simultaneously a word of hope and a word of caution. First, a word of hope. If you find yourself, like these many people coming to Jesus, far from God, in need of spiritual rescue, if you find yourself in need of deliverance from sin and a home for your soul, Jesus is your hope. He is the hope of the Gentiles. He's the hope of the whole world. The Son of God has come to us in human flesh to bring all of these blessings to us. Spiritual rescue, deliverance from sin, a home for your soul. He has accomplished our rescue from sin by His death for our sins in our place and His resurrection from the dead. And not only for those who are born of the right lineage, not only for those who are raised in church, but Jesus dies to deliver from sin all those uh, who uh, are separated from God in their sin. Jesus didn't come just for those who know all the right answers to all the hard questions in Sunday school. But He came also for the outcast and for the atheist, for the African and Latino and Asian and Caucasian alike. He came and gave His life for the sins of the pimp and the prostitute, for the drug dealer and the drug addict, for the abusive father and the abused child. He came as the hope of the nations and He offers hope and healing to all kinds of people. Friend, you can come to Him. As I was reflecting on this passage this week and just thinking through it and, and, and thinking about how to just apply it to, to my heart and to our hearts, I was reminded thinking about just this, this invitation that is all throughout the Gospels to come to Jesus. I thought of the, the song that's become a, a favorite for me and my son to sing together. It's a, a kind of a, a, a modern lullaby, if you will, a modern retake, uh, or maybe my generation's uh, take on Jesus Loves Me. You know that old song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, For the Bible Tells Me So. Simple song with profound meaning, but a song that's become favorite for Kai and I to sing together is the song, Jesus, Strong and Kind. We've sung it in worship a few times. It's a simple song. Jesus said that if I thirst, I can come to Him. No one else can satisfy. I should come to Him. Jesus said that if I'm weak, I can come to Him. No one else can be my strength. I can come to Him. Jesus said that if I fear, I can come to Him. No one else will be my shield. I should come to Him. And Jesus said, if I am lost, He will come to me. And He showed me on the cross, on the cross that He will come to me. For the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus. Jesus, strong and kind. The word of hope from Mark 3, at least verses 7 and 9, as we see the nations coming to Jesus, is this. If you are far from Jesus and you know that you need what He has to offer, you can come to Him. But now a word of caution. Just as this crowd nearly crushed Jesus in their fervency for healing, they're also, this crowd, at risk of missing the reason for His coming. 
We know that Jesus says, I I need to go to the other towns because I must preach there also. That's why I came, he says in Mark 1, uh, uh, I think 29. I came to preach. Hear me. It is entirely possible to be so absorbed in a picture of Jesus or an idea of who you think Jesus is and what he can do for you today that you miss the reality of who Jesus is and what he intends to do for you. A charismatic preacher can even gather a crowd that may appear charged, energized, on fire for Jesus, but both preacher and crowd can miss who Jesus is, the Son of God, the Messiah. They can miss what His mission was, not merely to heal, but to bring people to repent of their sins and be justified to God through trusting in Him. And we can never judge the orthodoxy of a crowd by its size. Just because a crowd is big does not mean it's faithful. Just because a crowd is small does not mean it's faithful. Neither can we be confident of the truth of a ministry because it is big or because it is small. There are faithful megachurches and there are faithful microchurches. There are unfaithful megachurches and there are unfaithful microchurches. Whatever size crowd we find ourselves in, gathered around Jesus, we must seek Christ, not for what He can do for you today, but seek Christ for Himself. And not only the things He can provide us, we must find ourselves among those who are of the same mind and intention to know Christ and be found in Him. All of the blessings of salvation come to us when we find ourselves in Christ Not just around Him, not just in proximity to Him, not just downhill from His blessings. Salvation comes when we find ourselves by faith in Christ, located in Him, joined to Him by trusting Him. You can read through, I encourage you, just the first chapter of Ephesians as Paul talks about all of the blessed realities of being saved. And there, over a dozen times, he locates all of these things in Christ. So why are you gathered around Christ today in worship? Why are we here? I pray it's so that we would find ourselves in Him. Not just around Him, not just hoping to get something from Him, but to know Him and be known by Him, to be united to Him by our faith and and edified and strengthened in that every moment that we are together with Him. We see in verses 7 to 9 of Mark 3, the nations coming to Jesus. And there's a word of hope to those who are far from Him that you can come to Him. And a word of caution to those who come. Come to Jesus, not for just what He can give, but for for Himself. Verse 10 then shows us, as the narrative progresses, shows us that this Jesus, the hope of the nations, heals. He does what only He can do. We find Jesus in verse 10, the hope of the nations healing, doing for these people what only He can do. He heals them. He makes them whole. In His mercy and kindness, even at the point of being nearly crushed to death, Jesus, the hope of nations, is healing the nations. I had to wonder a bit as I was reading through this passage why Jesus doesn't stop to correct all these mixed up and messed up people's theology. Why didn't He stop in the middle of this crowd and say, hey, listen, I know you have needs, but let me tell you why I'm really here first and then I'll address those things. Why doesn't Jesus preach to them? His absence of teaching, I, th- I think, is, it speaks loudly. Why does He only heal them? Don't these people need the gospel too? 
And of course we would say yes. And as I was thinking about that, I remembered a similar event in Jesus' life, again in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28. I think you'll see this on the screen and you can follow along reading it. Listen to this event, Matthew 15, 21 to 28. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. That's interesting. We've heard about people from there before. Gentile place. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But Jesus did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away. She's crying out after us. She's such a nag. Just tell her to go. Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter, severely oppressed by a demon, was healed instantly. Now, in this episode here in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is asked by a Gentile woman for healing for her daughter. And Jesus seems almost to turn her away by saying, I'm here for the Jews. I'm the Jewish Messiah. You're a Gentile. And this statement draws out of the woman a deeper understanding of the hope that the Messiah would be not just for Jews, but also for Gentiles, than even the Jews around Jesus, his own disciples, seem to understand. She says, yes, Lord, but even Gentiles are meant to be blessed by the overflow of God's Messiah to the Jews. And Jesus says, you get it, lady. You absolutely get it. What great faith you have in, God who, in the God who is not the gods of your ancestors, the Canaanites, go. Your daughter is healed. Jesus, in Mark 3, verse 10, heals these many sick and demonized people without correcting their theology I think in part because he's aware of the importance of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom to the Jews who have been waiting so expectantly for the kingdom to come. But Jesus is also meant, as he knows, to be the hope for the nations, not just the Jews. And so in his loving mercy, he's extending a healing hand to those who are oppressed and helpless and broken and desperate for only what he can do for them. The many of us in this room who are members of this fellowship, members of First West know, because we say it often, that our greatest needs are not physical, but spiritual. But even at that, our physical needs and our need for physical healing is a reminder of our need for spiritual healing. Paul, the apostle, speaks in Romans chapter 8 about the way that our bodies in this world groan in pain, longing in illness and futility for a greater healing for a new world to be birthed out of this broken one, for new bodies to be born out of these sinful and sick ones, and that even if we have that healing today, it does not compare to the healing we will have in heaven, because that's the place of final wholeness. The cries for help and healing from these people of the nations to Jesus in Mark 3, pleading with Him to heal them, are loud. Their cries are loud. Their desperation is deafening. Yet the cries of their bodies, racked with pain and disease and demons, are but an echo of the deeper cry of their souls to be rescued by a God who alone can save from sin. Now even knowing all this, brothers and sisters, let us consider, perhaps as Jesus was, 
that sometimes our physical needs are so loud and so painful that they threaten to drown out the call to the greater healing that we need in being saved from sin. May we, like Christ, bear with the lost and hurting. May we, like Christ, bind up their wounds. May we, like Christ, feed the hungry and walk with them through grief, not as the end goal of our ministry, but as the beginning of reducing urgent needs so that more important needs, needs of salvation, repentance, faith, sanctification, might be more easily seen and readily received by those that we're caring for. You know the difference between urgent and important needs, don't you? Urgent needs are those ones that are pressing right now, immediate. If I don't deal with them, bad things might happen. But not everything that is urgent is necessarily important. Right? Not having gas in your car could be an urgent need. If you don't have gas in your car, you can't make it to work tomorrow. You can't make it to your doctor's appointment, so on and so forth. An urgent need to put gas in your car is not as important as the need to go to work and make a living so you can care for your family and so on. And so often we, are, uh, we, we find ourselves uh, in tension between urgent needs and important needs. The need to be saved is an important need. It's also an, it's also an urgent need. Right? Because none of us is guaranteed tomorrow. But at the same time, there are sometimes urgent, more passing needs that, tend to, that, that threaten to drown out the important need of being saved. The urgent need. I'm hungry. And I'm so hungry, I can't even think. Uh, I, I, I can't even put one foot in front of the other. My, my children are crying because they're starving. I can't even think about anything but their well-being and my own survival. That's an urgent need. And it can drown out oftentimes the most important need, which is to know Christ and the salvation that he gives. Jesus does not ignore urgent needs to get to the important need with these people. But he meets urgent needs with the intent, I believe, of getting to the most important need. And we see that all through Scripture. And that's part of the call for us as Christians, is to meet urgent and important needs. Now, I'm not saying that meeting physical needs trumps proclaiming the gospel. I'll never say that. Never is that the case. The gospel is always more important than meeting physical needs. But sometimes the lost cannot hear the gospel over the growling of their empty stomachs and the cries of their desperate children. Even as we have known the abundant mercy of Christ to us in saving us from sin, may we also then abound in mercy to others so that they might all the more clearly and all the better hear the word of lasting hope and healing that is in Christ. The hope of the nations, Jesus, heals the nations, physically first, but ultimately spiritually. There's something in his pattern, I think, for us to follow. We see the nations coming to Jesus. We see the hope of the nations, Jesus himself healing them. And then in verses 11 and 12, we find the Son of God commanding demons. We've seen this before. Mark records this event ending very similarly to a, another mass healing episode in Mark 1, 29 to 34. I would encourage you, maybe this week, go and, uh, or later today, go and read Mark, 20, Mark 1, 29 to 34, and hold it up against, uh, or hold it up next to Mark 3, verses 7 to 12, and find all the various similarities that take place uh, in those two passages. In both of these places, Jesus is healing the sick and casting out demons. And in both of these places, demons give clear recognition of who Jesus is. Though in neither place are the demons ever bold enough to try to attack him. Here in Mark uh, 3.11, uh, 
whenever the unclean spirits saw him, presumably people are bringing to Jesus demonized family members and friends, whenever these unclean spirits uh, embodying or, or, or oppressing these people use the person's voice, they fall down before him and cry out, you are the son of God. These demons are expressing an interesting theology because they're not wrong. Mark says this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And these demons are falling down before Jesus and saying, you are the Son of God. The demons are professing right theology. Demons are not deceived. They're just desperately hateful against the one who they know Jesus is. James says in James chapter 2, verse 19, to the church, he says, you believe that God is one, you do well, it's good to have right theology, but even the demons believe and shudder. So right theology is not all that you need. The demons express orthodoxy. They express what is true. Jesus is the Son of God. They recognize Him for who He is. The eternal Son of God in human flesh and the man Jesus Christ. But Jesus silences them. The wording is actually a little bit stronger than that. We might say something like, he put them under a gag order. He told them, shut it. We discussed Jesus' reason for silencing demons, even when they say the right things. Back in chapter 1, even though what the demons say is true, their evil and deceptive nature is not to be trusted. They are right in what they say but they're wrong in all of their disposition toward Christ. They know He's the Son of God, and they hate Him for it. They know He is the Messiah, and they're terrified that He will rescue uh, their victims from out of their grasp. They know He is the King of kings, and yet still they plot treason against Him. Now Mark does not say, but I don't believe it's such a stretch to see how Satan can use the right theology from the wrong source to discredit and derail the ministry of Christ. But more importantly, we must understand that there is an eternal difference between knowing things about Jesus, that He's the Son of God, even having a reverence for Jesus and a respect for His power, falling down before Him like these demonized people did. There's a difference between that and submitting to Him as Lord. It is repentance from sin turning from living life on your own terms in your own way and trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ in your place that saves from sin and makes you right with God. Not simply recognizing His office, which is what these demons are doing. You're the Son of God. You have all power in heaven and on earth. You can do whatever you want with us. And they do the right thing. They fall down in front of Him. But in their hearts, they are still standing high in pride against Him and all that He is. So it is possible to say what is true and have all the wrong disposition in your heart about what is true. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, offers hope and healing for the nations. He offers it out of His mercy and His kindness to those in great need. But Jesus is not interested in merely your recognition of His power. I'll say that again. Jesus is not interested in only your recognition of His power. He did not live, die, and rise again simply to crush you under His foot and rub it in and make you bow before Him. No, He lived and died and rose again. He did all of this 
not to crush you underfoot, but to set Satan's captives free. Jesus lived and died and rose again to heal souls who have been shattered by sin. Jesus lived and died and rose again to give hope to those who have been crushed under the weight of spiritual oppression. He doesn't just want you to bow before Him in fear. He wants you to come to Him in loving worship. Friend, do you find yourself hating Jesus like these demons? Do you despise His call to repent of sin and place your faith and worship in Him? Does His call to holiness sound abominable in your ears? Does the invitation to humble yourself and follow Him as Master and Lord, does it stab at your self-confidence and self-assurance? If so, may it be that you are a victim of spiritual Stockholm Syndrome. You know what Stockholm Syndrome is. It's that phenomenon named after a group of hostages in a bank robbery in Stockholm, Sweden, a number of decades ago, who came to sympathize with their captors over the several of the many days of their captivity. This phenomenon of Stockholm Syndrome is so fitting to us in our sin. Because in our sin, we come to love our rebellion against God. We've convinced ourselves that sin is actually self-actualization. I am becoming my best self. I'm living my best life by doing all the things that please my heart today. We come to see the spiritual degradation of sin as liberation. I'm doing whatever I want. Nothing is holding me back. And we come to see Satan, our captor, as a dear friend. All the while gnashing our teeth at the one who is calling us to be free. Friend, are you a victim of spiritual Stockholm Syndrome? Have you come to love your sin so much that you see Satan as a friend and Christ as an enemy? That you cannot hear and and cannot understand the call from Jesus to come, not to be crushed under His foot, but to be lifted, to be made whole, to find your life in Him, to be healed of every spiritual sickness and to find right relationship with God. You can know true things about Jesus and still be lost and doomed to hell because you hate Jesus. Or... Because you know things about Jesus and you're indifferent to Him. I hope you hear this. If you're in such rebellion against Jesus, the end of your life, the end of your soul need not be the same as these demons who profess right theology but have all the wrong disposition, all the wrong posture in heart against God. Their end is hell and destruction. And so it is for everyone who knows what's true about Jesus but does not bow before Him as Lord. If you will allow God, though, to change your hatred of Christ to love for Him, there is only hope for your future, not destruction. If your rebellious recognition of Christ will turn into loving worship of Jesus, the Son of God, there is only salvation for you. If you will confess Christ as Lord of your life, He will not shut your mouth, but open it wide and give you a new voice to proclaim His praises and to call the nations to find their hope and healing in Him as well. Whatever reason you've come here today, let us leave in one mind and one determination to know Christ and to receive from Him gracious removal of our sin. It's what we need most. Whatever reason you've come here today, the Scriptures call you to know and to trust that there is hope and healing in Christ. Jesus is the hope and offers healing to all the nations And it is God's intention for us that we leave here not with armfuls of stuff from Jesus, 
but that we leave here in loving relationship, humbly following after the Son of God who gave His life as a ransom for many. Jesus offers hope and healing to the nations. Many of us have received that already. We have made that decision by God's grace and the faith that He has supplied to follow Jesus, to leave the world behind, to follow Him faithfully, and we are living every day in the the, uh, middle of that blessed reality of knowing Christ who died for us, of knowing not just that there is hope, but having hope, a confident expectation of life eternal in the presence of God because of who Jesus is and what He has done. Some of us in this room have yet to know that hope and healing. Some of us may in our hearts still be opposed to God, despising Him. But that does not need to be the case even as you leave today. As you leave today, you you may have a change of heart. You may change your own heart, direct it toward God, away away from yourself and toward Him who saves. You can know the hope and healing that Jesus offers, not just physically, but even far better spiritually to make you right with God, to give you a clear conscience before a holy creator, to give you the promise of life in his presence forever. I'm going to pray. In a moment, we'll sing a song of response together, a familiar song to many of us. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. For many of us, this, this song is expressing something that's already true right now in our hearts, a decision we have already made, and we sing it in loving worship and affirmation of the decision that we have made. For others of you here today, perhaps this song will, will lead you to make a decision to follow Jesus today, to place your faith and trust in Him, to turn from yourself, to follow Him in, in faith and dependence upon Him, His life, death, and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins, the one who has power to heal you spiritually and make you right with God. But as we sing, we encourage you, I encourage you, uh, to sing this song as a response, either of a reality that you know, or perhaps sing it as a prayer, or just listen and pray and ask God, that if it is his desire, his will for you, and his word says that it is, that he would turn your heart to love him and to follow his son. Let me pray, and then we'll stand together and sing this song.